podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from, while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast. Today is Friday. It is the 3rd of November, and the sun has actually made an appearance. Now, I wouldn't imagine it'll stick around for long. It tends to get scared in Ireland at this time of year, so I'm expecting rain later on. But it's nice to look out and see at least some brightness, you know, rather than the gloom that normally watches in the window. Uh, This is going to be an exciting weekend of football. We obviously have Premier League games, 10 of them. We'll talk about them with Guy later on. There's two big games in the Premier League this weekend at the top. Well, one is top versus mid-table. The other is two of the top teams. But both should be um, among the top teams. Um, We have some exciting stuff around Europe. So I just wanted to highlight some of the games around Europe this weekend for those who might be interested in watching non-Premier League football. Uh, in 
Italy tomorrow, 5 p.m. So tomorrow, Saturday, 5 p.m. kickoff, Atalanta versus Inter. I think that's going to be a really good game. And then Sunday, quarter to eight kickoff, Fiorentina against Juve. Fiorentina have made a good start to the season. Juve have made made an excellent start to the season and sit second at the moment in what is a bit of a surprise. So both of them, I think, definitely worth a watch. If you don't fancy Italian football, maybe Spanish football is more your bag. Uh, La Liga, 8 p.m. Saturday, Real Sociedad versus Barcelona. Now, if you're in the mood of some football tonight, Las Palmas take on Atletico Madrid at 8 p.m. UK time tonight on Friday. So, look, Las Palmas aren't great, but they are mid-table. They've made a really good start to the season for what was expected of them. And Atleti are going very, very well. They've currently got a game in hand. They sit third with that game in hand. Should they win the game in hand, they will go top of the league. So despite the fact that the others will play this weekend, they can win tonight and go top and then still have their game in hand after the weekend. And they might get lucky. Girona travelled to Osasuna. Osasuna are currently in 11th, so it won't be the easiest of games. Uh, Real Madrid are at home to Rayo Vallecano. You'd expect Real to win, but Rayo are hard to beat. They've only lost twice this year in the league. In France, we have tonight PSG versus Montpellier. On Montpellier, Mamadou Sacco has had his contract terminated after a clash with the manager, Michael Der Zakarian. Um, Le Kip have said that the ex-Liverpool player stormed off after his manager did not give a foul in training and later, angered by something Der Zakarian said, grabbed him and knocked him over. A club statement says, after 10 days of reflections, both parties have agreed in good faith to end the contract. But Sacco later wrote on social media... I decline all responsibility. You have to know how to leave the table when respect is no longer served. It's a shame that Sacco's career has played out like this, uh, where non-football incidents have torpedoed it multiple times. At Liverpool, the, the ban he got, which in the end he was completely exonerated for, but... It cost him a spot in the Europa League final and then at the Euros. And I have always felt that if he'd played at the Euros, France might have won the Euros over Portugal. I think he would have been an improvement in defence for them. He obviously went to Crystal Palace and he was quite good there. He just couldn't stay fit. The big issue for him there was just fitness. And it's been an issue for him with Montpellier. His first season there, he was excellent. But then last season, he missed over half the season. And that's kind of been the bar- the, the the knock on Sackle. The, whatever about the off-field stuff. At Liverpool, first season, misses 20 games, then 22, then 16. There's no question he was Liverpool's best centre-back in that period. We just couldn't stay fit. At Palace, he was injury-plagued for most of his tenure there. He had one season where he managed to stay relatively injury-free. 
and he missed 11 games in that season. But other than that, he was missing half the season or more. The first season at Montpellier, again, he stayed injury-free, but then the injuries have hit in, and then this has happened. So, you know, that is the end of Mamadou Sacco at Montpellier. I'm sure there'll be a club that'll snap him up in January. Wouldn't surprise me if he goes to the Middle East. Um, Also this week, we have Nice against Rennes on Sunday at quarter to eight. I think that's the game of the weekend, really. Nice are top. They've made a great start. They're defensively outstanding. The best team in Europe this season from a goals conceded point of view. They don't score a lot of goals, but when you've only conceded four and ten, you don't really need to score a lot of goals. But they might need more than one tonight because that Ren team, when it clicks, that's quite a high-powered attack. Now, they've not had a great start. They sit eighth. They've only won twice, but then they've only lost twice. A lot of draws in there. Uh, where else will we go? We'll go to the Bundesliga where we have a massive game. Probably the biggest game taking place in Europe this weekend. 5.30 on Saturday. Borussia Dortmund at home to Bayern Munich. It's the biggest clash in German football. It's one of the biggest in Europe. That promises to be an absolute belter. Both sides have been really good domestically. Obviously, Bayern have made a good start in the Champions League. Dortmund's start in the Champions League has been a bit mixed. But Dortmund progressed in the Cup during the week and Bayern went out to lower league opposition so not all plain sailing for Harry Kane and co uh what have we got in Portugal this week then tonight Porto take on Estoril Pereira at quarter past eight if you're looking for a game to watch tonight that could be the one and outside of that if you fancy watching Sporting who've been fantastic to start the year uh they play Estoril at 8 30 on Sunday. Uh, in the Eredivisie, if you're curious to see just how bad can things get for Ajax, they did win uh, yesterday. They won 2-0. That was their game in hand. So that was one of their games in hand, I should say. They had two. So that has actually lifted them off the bottom to the heady heights of 15th. Uh, this weekend, they're at home to Heronveen. Heronveen currently sit in 10th. Should Ajax win that game, which they'll be expected to win it, they could jump as high as ninth. And wouldn't that be a tremendous return on the first third of the season for them? So a lot of good games in Europe. A lot of good football to watch outside of the Premier League in the the main European leagues. Uh, In Scotland, if you fancy a bit of that, there is Ross County versus Celtic, 12.30 tomorrow, the early kickoff. If you fancy this, you might not. I wouldn't blame you. Uh, the championship, though, always throws up some games. And I think if you're going to watch a game tonight, it's a game from the championship. It's Leicester City versus Leeds United. 8 p.m. It promises to be a belter. Leicester has been brilliant this season. Leeds have really turned things around after a slow start. They currently sit third. Now, they are 14 points behind Leicester. They're nine points behind Ipswich in second. But they're back in a strong position. You've also got Southampton have turned things around as well after a slow start. And they sit in fourth. Uh, Other games of note, you might be interested in a bit of 
Birmingham, Wayne Rooney in charge there now versus Ipswich, who've made that great start. Uh, perchance, a bit of West Brom against Hull. West Brom sit fifth, Hull sit seventh, so that one could be a pretty decent game. Uh, Norwich Blackburn, if you're nostalgic for a bit of Premier League, old Premier League teams, uh, that one is a 12.30 kickoff on Sunday. So you've got Leeds-Leicester tonight. All the rest are 3 p.m. kickoffs Saturday. And then Norwich versus Blackburn is on Sunday. Uh, Should you fancy watching the mighty Wrexham this weekend uh, and subjecting yourself to a low standard of football, you actually can't because they are taking part, I believe, in one of the early rounds of the FA Cup. So there is no League Two football uh, this weekend. We also will have no League One football this weekend. The next League One football, there are games on Tuesday night, Shrewsbury, Bolton, Reading, Bristol and Wigan against Peterborough. So if you want to watch them, they'll be there for you. So you can watch football pretty much every night. You really can watch football every day of the week if you want to. Uh, the biggest game, though, taking place this week in world football will take place in South America. And it will be the final of the Copa Libertadores. It will take place at the Maracana in Rio de Janeiro. And it will see Boca Juniors against Fluminense. Fluminense are the away team in this game, but this is their home ground. So this stadium is going to be. Fluminense fans. If we take a look at their path to the final, Fluminense topped Group D uh, ahead of River Plate, Sporting Cristal, and the team with the best name anywhere in football, Bolivia's the strongest. It's just magnificent. And the badge is a really mean-looking tiger set on an amber and black background striped background with just the strongest across the top that's fantastic stuff um coming through that group they lost to sporting cristal away then beat the strongest and river plate at home beat the strongest away beat river away and then drew with sporting cristal so sporting caused them the most problems and ended up finishing third in the group in group f Boca finished top ahead of uh, deportivo pereira of Colombia, Colo Colo of Chile, and Menanges of Venezuela. Uh, they drew away in Venezuela, then they beat Deportivo, lost away to Colo Colo, and then won their last three games um, to finish fairly strong and get themselves through. They were seed four in the knockout phases, and Fluminense were seed eight. So they got a more favourable draw. They drew Nacional, Boca this is, drew Nacional in the round of 16. Nil-nil draw at home, 2-2 draw away and beat them 4-2 on penalties. No, sorry, I'm wrong. 2-2 draw away, nil-nil away, 2-2 at home, beat them 4-2 on penalties at the La Bombonera. Then they drew another Argentine side, Racing. They drew nil-nil at home. They drew nil-nil away. And then they beat them 4-1 on penalties. 
And in the semi-finals, they drew Palmieri's, who were the favourites to win the competition, have won it twice in recent years and were the reigning Brazilian champions coming into this season. They drew 0-0 at home, they drew 1-1 away, and then they won on penalties 4-2. So having won four of their six group games, Boca have not won any of their knockout games. They've just won three penalty shootouts. Fluminense drew Argentinos Juniors. They drew 1-1 away. They won 2-0 at home and progressed 3-1 in aggregate. They drew Olympia of Paraguay. They won 2-0 at home. They won 3-1 away and they went through 5-1 in aggregate. And then they drew fellow Brazilians Internacional. 2-2 at home and a 2-1 win away, which was quite the upset. Uh, Internacional were favoured to win that game, given it was at home, pretty strong advantage at home in a second leg of a knockout tie always. Even if there's no away goals, it's always a, a pretty strong advantage. Neither of these teams are performing at all well domestically. So in the Brazilian Serie A, Fluminense sit eighth. They are 14 points off top. They've won one of their last five games. They've lost 12 of their 31 games so far. And they have a goal difference of just plus one. They are dreadful defensively. And I I genuinely do mean dreadful defensively. There's only a handful of teams in the entire league with a worse defensive record. There are six teams in a 20-team league with a worse defensive record. And it would be one thing if they made up for that with a clatter of goals, but they've only scored 42. They've got the seventh best attack in the league and the seventh worst defense in the league. They are very, very average. Couple of standout players, a really unique style of play, a manager who's sort of the darling of the internet in Denise, who's currently the temp, the caretaker manager of Brazil as well. Um, he's his football is different, but he's almost like a cult hero in the same way Zdenek Zeman was when he was, you know, playing outrageous football with Foggia. In the same way Marcelo Bielsa has been for his tactical innovations, managers that don't necessarily win a ton, but play a style of football that you you can really appreciate and get behind. Uh, Fluminense's style is is very unique. It's not necessarily the most effective all the time, and it does leave them very open defensively. But they do make tweaks in the Copa. They're they're not the same team in the Copa as they are domestically. You can see that by the results, but you can also see it by the shape and the personnel they use. Domestically, Andre plays as a lone six, and teams just run through their midfield. In the Copa, Alexander starts next to him, and he's the proper six. He's the real ball winner in there, and they look a lot more solid. And I would expect he will start next to Andre in tonight in tomorrow night's game. Uh, other notable players, uh, Felipe Melo, 40 years of, of age, still booting people up in the air. Uh, Marcelo, Real Madrid legend. Ganzo, who came through at Santos at the same time as Neymar, and was expected to become 
a superstar was was the next Rivaldo and it's never quite worked out. Now, he's had a great career in Brazil. It didn't work from when he came to Europe. He came too late and it, it just didn't settle for whatever reason. Um, they're a fun team to watch, but they're a mixed bag. You don't really know what you're going to get with them. Boca are also a mixed bag this season. Now, if you don't know, the Argentine Premier League, the first phase is all 28 teams launched in. Far too many games, or far too many teams. You only play every team once. Boca ended the first phase in seventh position. 17 points behind River Plate. And that was after they ended the season with four successive wins. That'll tell you how poor they had been through most of that. In the second phase, they split into Group A and Group B, 14 teams in each. Boca are in Group B, and they're currently 10th. Belgrano are top, seven points ahead of them. Seven points isn't a huge amount, but there's only a handful of games remaining. So Boca not going to have any domestic success, wouldn't qualify for next year's Copa Libertadores based on league position this year, will need to win it to be in it, and so will Fluminense. Um, Boca have a couple of really interesting players as well. Valentine Barco, the left-back, left-winger, left-midfielder type. He is of interest to Man City. He was heavily linked in the summer to Brighton, and that would actually be the right move for him. I think he's going to end up being more of an attack-minded player than a fullback, even though he came through the academy primarily as a fullback. He has been moved forward already, and it wouldn't surprise me if he ends up playing off the right, coming in field onto his left foot. Like, imagine the Solly March role at Brighton. 4-2-3-1, left-footed Solly March in that right-wing role, coming into the central areas as a, an extra playmaker, as an extra runner and an extra goal scorer. That's the kind of role I could envisage Barco playing. The other one, the one that really interests me, is Ezekiel Fernandez. And I'm really looking forward to Ezekiel Fernandez versus Andre in the middle of the park. I think that battle could be massive in deciding who wins this game. If Andre is allowed to run the game, to dictate tempo, and he's just there as a metronome, Fluminense would have to be seen as favourites. If Fernandez can disrupt that and bully him, as he has done to most players he's come up against, then I think advantage switches to Baca. Other notable players at Baca, Edinson Cavani is there. Uh, he will most likely start. And Sergio Romero, former Manchester United goalkeeper, uh, he's also set to start. Uh, the What's the guy's name? The centre-back who played for United, Rojo, Rojo? Oh, God, that'll annoy me. Um, Yeah, Marcus Rojo. He is suspended. He will not play. Um, God himself 
sent off in the semi-final second leg. So he will miss out. But um, it's going to be a really even game. It's two huge names of clubs. It's just unfortunate that both of them are having down seasons. So we might not get the most entertaining game. Boca don't want it to be an entertaining game. If it's a really entertaining open game, Fluminense are winning this game by a couple of goals. If it's slower paced, physical, a little bit gnarly, then it's advantage Boca for sure. Should be. Should be a fun contest, at the very least. Uh, The game is available to watch in the UK. You can stream it live on the BBC iPlayer and the BBC Sport website. I believe it's also on the red button thing. Um, It is an 8pm kickoff, UK time, which is is really good because traditionally these have been on at like one in the morning. Um, I am looking forward to this. I have to say, I am looking forward to it. This is always, every year, this is something I look forward to. I try and keep track of this competition as much as I can, watch whatever games I can, just because it's, it reminds me of the old European Cup in some ways, because it doesn't have the production of a Champions League tie of a Champions League final or, you know, the not even the even the knockout phases. It, it's a little bit more rough and ready. And because I don't keep nearly as close a track on South American football as I used to, it's a lot of players I don't know and, and even teams that I'm not overly familiar with, which means it's like back in the day when you'd watch, you know, it could even be a UEFA Cup tie and Liverpool might draw some team from Russia that I had no idea who they were. And you just get to learn about a whole bunch of new players. So I, I really, really enjoy uh, this competition. And like, it has great history to the competition as well. And if we look at the historical side of things, Boca are the side with real history in this competition. This would be title number seven if they were to win. They haven't won it since 2007. They got to the final in 2018 against River Plate. And you'll remember that the second leg had to be moved to the Bernabeu Madrid, which was something they then talked about doing because after that year, that was the last year of the two-legged final. That's part of why I loved it, was the two-legged final is great. But they decided they were going to change to a one-leg final, or a one-off final. And there was talk that they were going to hold them in different parts of the world. That would have been horrendous for the fans. Like, that final in Madrid was great for Europeans, but it was horrendous for the River Plate fans. They didn't get to have the home leg of that final. They still went on and won it, so they were happy enough, but they didn't get to have that that home final. Um, Boca also lost the final in 2012. They were beaten by Corinthians that year. They dominated the 2000s. They won it in 2000, 2001, 2003, 
and 2007, and were also runners-up in 2004. So five finals in that decade. Very, very impressive. Four wins. Um, Fluminense don't have the history in this competition. They've only ever been to the final once before. They got to the final in 2008 and were upset by um, Quito from Ecuador, beaten 3-1 on penalties after a 4-2 first leg and a 3-1 second leg. 5-5 on aggregate, on to extra time, no winner, on to penalties. And Fluminense lost. They had been heavy favourites going into that. That's their only appearance in the final, which for such a big club is quite surprising. Like, they're not Flamengo, they're not Sao Paulo, but they're they're a big, big club in their own right. But they haven't had the European or the, the continental success. They haven't had incredible domestic success either. They've only won four league titles, but still, they, they are historically a, a big club and they're a club of underachievers. It's kind of always been the the tag on them. They underachieved by, while Flamengo, Flamengo kind of were, were the ones that brought home silverware. Seven titles, three Copa Libertadores. They won it last year, Flamengo did. They also won it in 2019. And they rub it in the face of Fluminense. So for Fluminense, this is an opportunity to, to rub it back, so to speak. Um, so yeah, that's what we've got. 8 p.m. tomorrow. If you can watch it, I highly advise watching it. I think it's going to be an absolute... It's a great event. Whether the game is as exciting as you might hope, maybe not. I think it's going to be a really interesting game, though. Because it's contrasting styles. It's one team that plays unlike anything you'll ever see. And then Baca under Almiron, I mean, they're just, they're very much, uh, I don't want to say they're agricultural because they're not quite agricultural, but they're a little bit Hodgson-esque. Like, I'm not sure how he's manager of Baca Juniors because nothing in his track record suggests this guy should be Baca manager other than one season at Lanos where he surprised everybody and he won a league title. Other than that, he has not been particularly good manager. He's got a career record of 177 wins from 451 games. That's less than 40% win rate. At multiple clubs, he's below 30% from a significant chunk of games. But he's been sacked so many times. But if he wins this, then he's probably going to get a new contract and everybody love him. And then he might get sacked in six months because that's just how it works in South America. Uh, on to the BBC website and we'll see what they've got for us. <clears throat> Manchester United ownership needs resolution for clar- clarity on Eric Ten Hag future, reports Simon Stone. Quoting unnamed sources, he has said that the feeling behind the scenes is that they are waiting for the Jim Radcliffe, Ineos group 
25% buy-in before any decisions will be made regarding the football operations side of things and what would then happen with Ten Hag. The Athletic have reported this morning that for now Ten Hag is safe, but that not maybe as safe as he was three weeks ago. Um, we've done the Sacco piece. Quality of Premier League's top teams is unprecedented, says Mikel Arteta. Well, that simply isn't true. It just simply isn't true. What has happened in the last five years is unprecedented. Well, if you want to look at Liverpool versus City and the years that they went head-to-head, two teams routinely getting over 90 points, then yes, that is unprecedented. But the quality overall, no. You think back to the 2000s when we had Mourinho's Chelsea, Wenger's Arsenal, Ferguson's United and Benitez's Liverpool. That was stronger than this. You think back to the 90s when you had Wenger's Arsenal and Ferguson's United. They were better than this. You think back further than that to the Newcastle team that came second. Look back at the Blackburn team that won the league. There's no great team in the league this season. City can be a great team. So they have the capability to be a great team. But last year, the Premier League was weak. And the Champions League was weak. And City capitalised. And huge credit to them for capitalising because other teams in that position would not have done so. But this is not the best City team that Guardiola has had. That 17-19 to vintage would have wiped the floor with this one. That Sterling, Aguero, Sané front three is was absolutely terrifying with De Bruyne, Fernandinho and Silva as a midfield three. That was significantly better than this. That team didn't really have a weakness. The left-back position was the weakness in that squad. Zinchenko played there quite a bit. That was the weak point. This current team has a couple of weaknesses. That team was ferocious. That midfield and attack were unbelievable. And especially when company was fit. They were different class. Because you had Gundogan and you had Bernardo as squad players. Just consider that. Ilkay Gundogan and Bernardo Silva as squad players to come in and out whenever the manager needed. Still playing a ton, but they had those eight players for those front six positions. That was just different class. Different class altogether. Uh, So Arteta is just trying to make out that, you know, he's competing against unprecedentedly strong teams. He's setting himself up for the excuse when he once again fails to win a major tournament. Uh, I did have the joy of an interaction with an Arsenal fan the other day, uh, yesterday, in fact, who was, you know, dismissing the fact that his team had been knocked out of the League Cup and took great umbrage to be pointing out that that was one of the two competitions that Arsenal had a chance of winning this season. He responded with, but we were in four competitions this year. And then I pointed out as politely as I always do, that there's not a chance in hell that they'll win the Champions League. 
And I wouldn't give them much hope of winning the Premier League either. I think they'll finish third. They could even finish fourth. They're a good team. They're not a great team. This is not a great Arsenal team. It's not a vintage Arsenal team. We've seen much better Arsenal teams than this. Wenger had two teams better than this. The George Graham Arsenal team was better than this. And that's just in my lifetime. That doesn't even take in what they've done before George Graham. So, you know, this this team, it's all right. It's good. It's good. But the question marks in goal. You've got serious question marks in defence. You've got question marks in midfield. You've got some question marks in attack as well. There's not one area of this Arsenal team that you'd look at and think, perfect. Like in attack, the front, the starting three are really good. Saka, Jesus, Martinelli, really good. Behind them, Nelson, Enketia and Trossard. Really? That's your depth? Liverpool have Gakpo and Jota, and you've got this? So that's a question mark. In midfield, you've got Odegaard and Rice as the starting eights. That's good. That's good. Both have some issues, but that's good. Behind them, you've got Fabio Vieira, question mark. Kai Havertz, big question mark. Thomas Partey is your starting number six. Very good player when available. Very questionable human being. Big, big, big question mark. In fact, multiple question marks after that one. And the backup is Jorginho. That's not ideal. That's not ideal. For midfield, you spend quite a lot of money on. It still needs quite a lot of work. Like there's, there's hundreds of millions of pounds gone into that midfield well in excess of 250 million into that midfield. And you still got that many question marks? Really? That doesn't seem like it's pushing 300 million. 105 for Rice. There's a 35 for Odegaard is 140. You spent 50 on Party. There's 190. You spent 65 on Havertz. You spent 30 on Vieira. So there's 280 and Jorginho was 12. That's 292. And you're pushing 300 million and that midfield still needs a lot of work. And then defensively, you've got White, Tomiyasu and Timber as right backs. That's a lot of repetition, really. You've got Zinchenko as the only actual left back in the squad because you've Shanghai'd Kieran Tierney at the door. And Zinchenko's not exactly a great left back. So there's a question mark. Left side centre-back, Gabriel, he's good. He's error-prone. He'll cost you over the course of the season. And then uh, Kiwar as the backup. Like, I haven't seen enough of him to really judge, but Gabriel, just question marks. You've got Saliba as the right side centre-back. He's talented. There's no doubt. He's, he's good. He's not great. He's overrated significantly because he looks like a, the Rolls-Royce defender. But he kind of reminds me a bit of Rio Ferdinand. Like, looks the part, but when you really dig down into his performances, he makes quite a few errors and doesn't have great awareness. 
and they don't really have a backup for him. It's one of the fullbacks would fill in for him. They're all very different and they're not really centre-backs. Timber's too small. Tomiyasu struggles in that position with the positioning and reading the game. He's much better at fullback and Ben White is so, so weak in the air, but then so is Saliba. So it's not a major drop-off. There, there's loads of question marks in defence. And then the goalkeeper, I mean, what goalkeeper do they have? They've got David Ray and Aaron Ramsdale. And the wise man once said, if you've got two goalkeepers, you don't have any goalkeeper. If you've got two starting goalkeepers, you've got no starting goalkeeper. Simple as that. Cannot win trying to balance like that. You've got to have a definitive starter. And if it's David Rea, he's not good enough. And if it's Aaron Ramsdale, he's not good enough either. So they have big question marks. So for all that money spent, well over 600 million, there's probably still another two or 300 million has to be spent on that squad. And even then, they might not win the title or the Champions League. And then what? Then what do you do? Then you're eight or 900 million in. Do you continue to throw money at this manager who hasn't won a tap since he started spending money? Won an FA Cup with Unai Emery's squad playing more similar to Unai Emery's football and then started implementing his own football. He finished second last year, but he bottled the title. The year before he finished fifth, he bottled top four. The year before that, he finished eighth. They're progressing upwards, but... Does anyone really fancy them to beat City? Does any non-Arsenal fan think that they're winning the league this year? I don't think so. Uh, Not sure how I got on to that. But uh, let's just do the gossip. And, oh, yeah, it was was Arteta saying that the league was was unprecedented in its strength, uh, which, yeah, again, is, is just nonsense. Uh, on to the gossip then. Real Madrid want Reese James, but Chelsea will demand a big fee. I wouldn't be against the sale if I was Chelsea because that kid, for as talented as he is, and he is a very good player, he is always hurt. Always, always hurt. If you're 23 and I look at transfer market for your injury history and there's a page two, I'm concerned. This is his fifth season as a first-choice player for Chelsea. 24 games in the league, so missed 14. 32, so missed 6. 26, so missed 12. 16, so missed 22 games. And 3. So he's missed 7 already this season. That's not good. That's not good at all. I would entertain a good offer for him, without question. Um... AC Milan are interested in 25-year-old English defender Lloyd Kelly, although Tottenham want him too. Uh, I think he's had a contract in the summer, so that would make, make sense for some clubs. I don't love the idea of him at Spurs, but I suppose as a backup to Van de Ven, that's, he'd, be, he'd be decent. Um, he wouldn't start for Spurs, but he'd be decent as a backup. I think he'd be a backup at, at AC Milan as well now, to be fair. Uh, Juventus, Borussia Dortmund, Fulham and West Ham are among other clubs who are interested in Kelly, whose deal does expire in the summer. Um, I don't think he starts for any of them except West Ham. Now, you could definitely make a case for him at Fulham, but I think Anthony Robinson's probably a slightly better left back, and I would rather have Tolson and Diop 
as my centre-backs. Plus, they spend a lot of money on Calvin Bassey. But at West Ham, as the left-back, I think he starts for them. Arsenal could make a £13 million move for Royal Antwerp midfielder Arthur Vermeeren in January, but Barcelona are also keen on the 18-year-old. He's got the potential to be really, really special. And he's young enough that if you wanted to make him into a six, you could do it. He has all the, he has all the skill set to do it. He has the physical tools, the intelligence, the reading of the game. He'd need to work on a little bit on positioning and stuff, but that's all stuff that comes with, with age and experience that I, I don't have any doubts he can master. Manchester United are exploring alternatives to Eric Ten Hag, who is considered to be on thin ice with Ruben Amram of Sporting, who I suggested would be my choice if I was making the decision there, and Zinedine Zidane as possible replacements, according to the Times. Knowing United, they'd go for Zidane and it would be a mess and they'd just end up in the same position uh, a year later. Uh, it would cost United more than $15 million in compensation if they were to sack Ten Hag this season because he was smart enough to get himself a guaranteed contract. A number of Manchester United players have not agreed with the strict way Ten Hag has treated the England duo of Jaden Sancho and Harry Maguire, although there are those in the squad who believe in his authoritarian approach. The treatment of Maguire has been, has been poor, but like the performances have been so bad that you you kind of do back the manager on that one. The Sancho thing is just it's just a disaster for everybody involved. Manchester United want to recruit another striker to support Rasmus Hoyland as concerns grow over the development of the twenty year old. What concerns are you having at this stage in his career about development? He's only been there a couple of months. He arrived with a back injury. He's played 12 games. He's got three goals. Admittedly, he hasn't scored in the league yet. But, like, it's not like he's played 5,000 minutes and not scored in the league. And I know you couldn't play 5,000. There isn't 5,000 minutes in, in a league season, but you know what I mean. Like, in the league this season... He has played a total of 493 minutes. That's just over five nineties. Five and a half games. That's not bad. It's not bad. It happens to everybody. He'll be fine. He'll be fine. He's he's super talented. I don't have many doubts about him. Uh Ivan Tony is one option being looked at by Ten Hag, as well as Napoli and Nigeria striker Victor, Victor Austin. Let me just say they're not getting either of them because there's no way they're funding that. Uh, Iran and Porto Ford, Mary Terami has been looked at. That's an interesting one because he's 31. His, he's slightly past his best. He's really good, though. And I do think, given the career that he's had, you know, he was it was in Iran until he was, what, 22? Then he moved, sorry, no, he was in Iran until he was 26. Then he left Iran and he went to play in Qatar for a year. Then he moved to Portugal at the age of 27, had one season with Rio Ave, did very, very well. And now he's at three seasons with Porto. 
So it's only since he was 28 that he's started to make real, like, big money. Because I can't imagine the clubs in Iran were, they were obviously paying him well. I can't imagine they were paying him. He wasn't getting 100 grand a week there. He's probably not getting anywhere close to that now with Porto. But at United, he could go and he could absolutely fill his bank account full of the lovely green currency. He'd fit English football very well with that physical style of his. He's a very reliable goal scorer. If I was him, I would take that move. I would take that move. If they split the starts between him and Heusland and he can mentor Heusland, I think it works for everybody. And I don't think if in 12 months Tarami is just a backup, I don't think he'd, I don't think he'd kick off. I think he'd be happy enough to play a part at such a big club. Uh, England striker Tony has confirmed to Brentford that he would like to leave once the January transfer window opens. So this is our good friends, Tom Gott and Graham Bailey, um, spoof man and spoofing. He can't leave as soon as the window opens because he's banned for half the month, you jackasses. Everton are in talks with Tottenham over changing the transfer agreement. For English midfielder Deli Ali, they will owe Spurs 10 million if Ali plays seven more games. And of course, Everton can't actually afford to pay that. And it's a really unfair situation because obviously Delhi's been through a lot and he actually can't play now because if he does, the club are going to end up in even deeper financial trouble. It's not a good situation. Manchester United could bid for Porto and Portugal goalkeeper Diego Diogo Costa with Andre Onana likely to go to AFCON. Yeah, they're going to spend $65 million to cover for a fella who's going away for seven games. Good story. Uh, Tottenham are prepared to sell Giovanni Lo Celso in January and would accept an offer of 15 to 20 million. Really going out on a limb there is Wayne Vesey, King of the Spoofers. Um, everybody knows that Giovanni Lo Celso is available. Gus Poyet admits there is a possibility he will be contracted over the Republic of Ireland job with his future as Greece boss unclear. Um, I don't hate it. I don't hate it. I liked Gus when he was at Brighton. I liked him as a player. Very much liked him as a player with, with Saragossa, Chelsea and Spurs. Um, liked what he did at Brighton. After that, not so much. I think it's fair to say. Was a bit surprised he got the Greek job. I don't think I actually had realized he got the Greek job. He's done a good job. He's won nearly 56% of his games. Seems he did quite well with Bordeaux. I think I went over this a few weeks ago. Uh, did well with AEK Athens as well. Did not do well with Real Betis. Did not do well with Sunderland. And did not do well in China. Uh, has also been home to managing in Chile. Well, no, because he's Uruguayan, so not home, but he's been back to South America to manage in Chile, uh, and it didn't go great either. I don't know. International football might suit him. Eberichi Eze will treble his salary with a new Crystal Palace contract, which will contain a substantial release clause. I think that would be a good move for everybody. 
Pau Torres says he was close to joining Real Madrid from from Villarreal in 2021. Yeah, that was a deal that kind of rumbled for ages and then just disappeared. Barcelona are interested in signing Joshua Kimmich with the 28-year-old unlikely to sign a new contract with the German club. Uh, Barcelona do not need Joshua Kimmich. He is not the player they need. They need a defensive midfielder. That's not what he is. He thinks he is. He's just not. Watch them play against good opposition with him as a six. And he he just doesn't look good. He just doesn't look good at all. He needs to play right side of a midfield three. That's what he needs to do. He's very, very good in that role. He's a great right back. He's good as the controlling one in a double pivot. He's not a defensive midfielder. Uh, but that is the gossip, and we will be back after this break where we will be joined by Mr. Drinkle. See you soon. Right, welcome back. So, as always on a Friday, we're joined by Mr. Drinkle. How are you, Guy? It's a bit chilly. A bit chilly. It is a bit chilly, given you live in Iceland, but, you know, you'll have to get used to that. It's going to be a lot colder for you mm. for the next few months. Uh, we have a lot of football this weekend. We have some interesting games, and we have a couple that are not so interesting. <laughs> well... Yeah, and I think the first game, I'm not sure which category you'd put it in. I think it's interesting from off-field point of view and what happens after the game, but within mm. the game itself, might be a tad fugly. Yeah, this this won't be a pretty game of football by any stretch. We have uh, Fulham currently 14th at home to Manchester United currently 8th. Uh, only three points separating the sides. And if Fulham were to win this game by two goals they would go above Manchester United in the Premier League table. This is very much your mid-table clash. And United really can't afford to lose this game. More to the point, Eric Ten Hag cannot afford to lose this game. Now, United have been cribbing and crying about injuries. Going into this weekend, no Lissandra Martinez, no Malashia, no Luke Shaw. Uh, Varane should be fine. Ahmed Diallo's injured. And Jaden Sancho's just not playing because the manager's all up in his own feelings. Um, so the injury thing is not nearly as bad as they've made out. It's just, it's kind of been one position heavy. They've been decimated at left back and Reckonham was out as well. So at one point, all four of their options in that role were injured. And that's why we saw, you know, Amrabat at left back and Lindelof at left back. But Reckonham can play there now that he's back fit. For Fulham... They also have injury problems, and unfortunately for them, centre-back is where they've taken a bit of a pummeling. Uh, no Diop, no Tosin. Um, Adama, this weekend, probably comes too soon for him. And Kenny Tete is in the same boat, probably misses out this weekend. So, United have lost 8 of 15 games this season, and that's just not acceptable. But they've only lost three times away from home if we're looking for the positive. Now, that's not a positive. It's not a positive at all. They are by far the worst of the top clubs in terms of, you know, one loss record. I know they're ahead of Chelsea in the league, but they've lost eight times in their 15 games. Nobody else has been nearly as bad. Nobody else has lost nearly as many times. Now, they'll point to the fact that certain other clubs don't play Champions League, and that's all well and good, but that's still only two losses. 
You've still lost, you've lost six domestic games. They're yet to draw in the Premier League, which is a really strange thing. Ten games in, five wins, five defeats. The only other team that hasn't had a draw this season is City, but they've won eight of their games in the league, and they're third and only behind Arsenal on goal difference. United are eighth. They're two points behind Brighton. Brighton haven't won any of their last four games. They're two points behind Newcastle, one win in their last three. They're seven points behind Aston Villa and eight points off top four already. They're they're only nine points ahead of Bournemouth. There's only a one-point difference between where they look up at Liverpool and where they look down at Bournemouth. It's been a catastrophic start to United. They need to win this game. They need to win this game. And Fulham have been very hit and miss this season. The loss of Mitrovic has been enormous. They haven't replaced him. They struggle to score goals. You look at the league table, they've only scored nine goals in 10 games. But United have only scored 11 in 10 games. They've both conceded the same number of get of goals, 16 each. This says to me either nil nil or 1-1. Or maybe United sneak at 1-0, but there won't be a lot of goals in this game. I'm going to go for the 1-1 draw. Because I just don't I don't have any, any faith in United at all. They just look so poor, so disjointed. There doesn't look to be any kind of cohesion. There's no confidence in the team. I'm going to go 1-1. I, I, I think it's going to be an ugly game. Yeah, it's kind of like a lose-lose situation for United, isn't it? If they win, it's what you expect. And if yeah. anything, anything below that, it's like... Yeah. More pressure on the on the manager. Mm, exactly. And obviously, Rodrigo Muniz is now the new number nine at Fulham. <laughs> so that should be fun. And potential meet you vibes there, but we won't get dragged into that. Uh, we'll move on to the three o'clock kickoffs then, Dave. And Brentford against West Ham. I mean, a few weeks ago, I think most people be saying this should be a not comfortable, but should be a win for uh, for West Ham. But you see what a, basically a week does for West Ham. Mm. I mean, the nightmarish week and Brentford. A couple uh, good results back to back, or decent results back to back. Um, yeah, it, it changes the narrative going into it. It does. A couple of weeks ago, West Ham were, you know, looking at the top four and and thinking, "Geez, maybe we can get get ourselves into that kind of mix." And Brentford were n- nervously looking over their shoulder at what was below them, and now they sit, you know, ninth and tenth respectively, with only one point between them and Brentford having the significantly better goal difference. Brentford were really good against Chelsea last week. Um, Just manipulated Chelsea, allowed them to have the ball, realised that they couldn't, Chelsea couldn't hurt them, and tore them asunder on the counter-attack. Should have scored three, four, could have even got five. West Ham were diabolical against Everton. It's the only way to put it. They were awful. Now, West Ham did bounce back in the week with a really good win over Arsenal in the Cup, following three straight defeats that they needed that result. But Brentford's always a you know tough enough place to go. It's a, it's a narrow enough pitch, and Thomas Frank sets his team up really well. 
The lack of a nine is hurting Brentford this season, though. It is the one thing, even though they've scored 16 goals, which is pretty respectable. I mean, it's the same as West Ham, and it's the best in the league after the top seven. They're still not always that convincing going forward. But West Ham aren't convincing at the back. 17 goals conceded in 10 games is not good. But they did get pumped by Villa. Mm. That, it's weird because I like the well, I like the centre back. I like the centre back pairing. I like the goalkeeper. I don't like the the fullbacks. Sufal looked like he was back at the start of the season. He had about five or six games where he really looked like he was back to what he had been not last season, but the season before and the season before that. But he's he's fallen off a cliff again. I, he has been playing with an injury in his defence. The left-backs, I mean, I'm not a fan of Palmieri, and it, it's years since Cresswell was a Premier League calibre defender. Um, Edson Alvarez is suspended, which is an enormous blow for for West Ham, especially defensively. But I believe Lucas Paqueta is back. Or am I right with that? Am I right with that? Is he back? Or is he suspended? He might be suspended as well. I'm not sure. He might be suspended as well, actually. Is there a lot of people getting five yellow cards quicker than ever this year? Yes. Yeah, the the referees are a lot more card-happy this year Mm. than they have been. Did Paqueta play last weekend? Lucas. Oh, what am I doing? In West Ham. I think he did play against Everton. He definitely played in the week. Yeah, I think he played against against Everton. Everton. And he did play in the week. So, yeah, he is suspended for this one. Um, So him and Alvarez out, I mean, that's massive. That's two of their best players. Um, They can't really afford to be without anybody at the moment. Brentford do have a bunch of injuries, though. Rico Henry, Kevin Shade, Josh De Silva, uh, Mikel Damsgaard. Also significant doubts over Keen Lewis Potter and Shandon Baptiste. And obviously Ivan Tony is suspended. So they kind of balance each other out, but still I now have concerns over West Ham's ability to control that game in midfield because you're not going to tell me Ward, Prowse and Suchek are going to rock into Brentford and and dominate the midfield against Jan Elton, Jensen and Norgaard. Um, I'm going to go 2-1 to Brentford. Yeah, I think that could be anything, that one. But it, it, I think that could be fun. Um but there's next game day, <laughs> Burnley against Palace. I think the only fun news is that Eze is potentially back, I think Roy said in his presser. Um, now we're just kind of waiting for a lease, and then maybe Palace can go back to being what Roy Hodgson did at the end of last season, where he mm. he forgot what, who he was. <laughs> um, but I suppose this is a good opportunity for Burnley, who just not adapted at all to the Premier League. No, Burnley just looks so poor. Like the, we, we recorded um, scouted for Anfield Index just before this, and Carl Matchett was talking about how, like Burnley looked quite good between the boxes. A lot of the build-up play is quite good, but they can't defend and they can't score goals, and that's that's not a good mix to have in the Premier League. They've scored eight goals, they've conceded twenty-five. They spent all that money on all those wingers and forgot to buy people that could put the ball in the net. Um. This weekend, no Ekdal, no Cullen, 
Manuel Benson's a doubt. Bayer is out. Lyle Foster should be okay, but Obafemi is out. For Palace, as you mentioned, Eze is back. Tyreek Mitchell should be fine. James Tompkins is out. Elise is out. And Dean Henderson is, is out again with yet another injury, uh, which obviously he suffered about 18 minutes into his debut for, for Palace. This is not going to be an attractive game of football. Like this is going to be this is going to be tough because like look, Burnley will try and play decent football, they're just not very good. And you do feel like if they are going to stay up, it might need to be without Vincent Company. Which, considering what a good job he did there last season, is really harsh. But they're so naive. Like, they're such a naive team. Mm. Like, last weekend, I watched them play Bournemouth. And they they came away cribbing and crying about the Rodriguez thing. It was offside. They got to the right... Like, the process wasn't right because the line was initially drawn wrong. But he was offside. They got the right end result on it. But they were so open at times. Bournemouth cut through them a couple of times with with like ridiculous ease. You look at that defensive group, Vitinho's a good player, Taylor's a little bit past his best, O'Shea is best in a back three, and Aldakil, I I don't really know what to make of him at the moment. He's very young and he makes a lot of quite silly mistakes. I I do think there's talent there. I think he's going to be a really good player. But he does make silly young defender mistakes that all young defenders make. I I just don't feel like they've got that lead centre-back. They've Mm. got a bunch of decent centre-backs, but none who really take command and organise Missing like a Gary Cahill, Johnny Evans type. Yeah, do you know, like even Craig Dawson would be a huge help to them right now. Mm. Someone who can just, you know, Michael Keane, as bad and all as he is, would actually help them right now because at least he's a talker. Eric Dyer would be a huge help to them. And then the other issue is they can't score goals. Amdoni is talented. I really like watching him play, but he's more a second striker than an out-and-out striker. Zaruri is talented. I like watching him play. He's a winger. There's a whole bunch of other wingers there who are, again, very talented, fun to watch, but they're not your out-and-out number nines. You've got Jay Rodriguez, who is well past his best, You've got Lyle Foster. I have some doubts as to whether he's a Premier League caliber player. And outside of that, I mean, who's getting me the goals? They've got a bunch of players that can create the chances, but nobody that can take the goals. A whole bunch of wingers, attacking midfielders. Aaron Ramsey's another attacking midfielder. Odebear's another winger. Loads of talent, but nobody that I can look at and go, you know what, he's going to get me 12 to 15 goals guaranteed, and I know I can rely on those goals. 
There's no one there. And like I say, when you've got that issue up front, that issue that they have at the back, it's not a good recipe. Palace are a better team than them. I expect Palace to go there and win. I think this is one of the games Roy will have ticked off as as a potential Mm. win. I'm going to say 2-1 to Palace. Yeah, and I think that's how Roy's built his career, isn't it? He's beaten those teams. (laughs) Maybe try a bit beyond the means and Palace just do what Palace do. Um, Next up, Dave, I mean, on paper, and we've had this story before in this exact same fixture, you'd think Brighton should just tonk Everton. Yeah. Bogey team, question mark? Yeah, very much so. Exclamation mark. Um, Yeah, I mean, last season, Everton looked like a team destined for a little bit of the championship. And they had themselves a, a trip to the South Coast. At the time, Brighton were playing exceptionally well. They'd beaten Manchester United in the previous game, having hammered Wolves in the game before that. They would beat Arsenal, funnily enough, in their next game. But Everton went there and beat them 5-1 and absolutely ran them off the pitch and pumped long balls into the box and caused them all kinds of trouble. Now, you would hope that Brighton have learned a little bit from that. But, you know, if we look at the teams that have beaten Brighton by two or more goals in the last, say, eight months, you've got Forrest under Steve Cooper, you've got Everton, you've got Eddie Howe, Newcastle, can play quite direct a fair bit of the time. And then this season, West Ham, Villa, like, they're the teams that cause Brighton problems. A big physical number nine with, with decent movement and speed, a powerful midfield, and a manager who's not afraid to play in the muck. And Sean Dyche doesn't just like to play in the muck. He likes to roll around and he engulfs himself in the muck. This is the type of game that Everton that Everton will win. I think. Like, they're missing Deli Ali, Andre Gomes, and Seamus Coleman. I think he'd be starting Coleman, but the other two are squad players. Um, For Brighton, they are without Enciso, Motor. They're hopeful Estupinen will be back, which would be huge. Lamptey should be back. Uh, Welbeck is out and Solly March is out and, and might be out for a while, unfortunately, uh, which is such a shame because he'd been in incredible form for the last 12 months since the Zerby, thir- 13 mm-hmm. months since the Zerby took over. Do you know, I'm going to pick the Everton win here. I'm going to go 3-1 to Everton. I just think, I talked about this yesterday in response to your question about who would I go for as a manager for United. The Zerbi's football, everything has to be perfect for it to work. All of the players have to be a perfect fit for it to work. And by work, I mean win you a league title. It works at Brighton to an extent, but the ceiling on this team is probably sixth. 
And if you look at some of the talent they have, particularly in attack and at left back, that's top four level talent. Like they've got a top four caliber attack. I think Belieb is a top four caliber player in time. Lewis Dunk's a good defender, but he's slow and he likes to back off a little bit too much. If you swapped out, let's say, Dunk and Webster for, let's just say as an example, Romero and Van de Ven or Van Dyke and Kanate, this is easily a top four team. Easily. And I think De Zerbi needs every player to be kind of the ideal fit for what he's looking to do. He does try and make do, but those are the areas in which his teams get exploited. Milner gets exploited. Veltman can be exploited. Dunk can be exploited. Webster can be exploited. The goalkeeper can be exploited. Everything else functions brilliantly. But when two or three parts that let him down... They do tend to capitulate a little bit. And and they don't... The thing... The knock I have on De Zerbi is he's not pragmatic enough. He doesn't react quickly enough to a flaw in his team, which we saw against Everton last year. We saw against Villa this year. That's how you get absolutely trounced. When you continue to do the same things, despite the fact that there's a glaring weakness and the opposition are picking on that weakness. So I'm going to go 3-1 to Everton. Yeah, I think, obviously, we're as Liverpool fans, we're not in the market for a new manager, but when you see Deserby willingly pick Milner against Doku, you're like, do I really want this guy as manager? It's a bit bit terrifying. In fairness, Jurgen Klopp once picked James Milner to play against Will Zaha. So, yeah, but that know, was like that was a good few years ago. He was well. still crap at that point. He was, but we that and 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 Zaha was a lot better than Doku is. But it's the same trait. There's Matt. There's just there's something innate with certain managers where they kind of put too much emphasis on experience and lads that like Milner's very good at taking on board instructions. When when Deserby tells Milner, this is what I want from you, Milner will take it all in and program himself to do exactly what the manager says. The issue is he can't actually do it. Klopp is very much in that vein. Deserby is in that vein. There's a bunch of others as well. They value experience a little bit too much. I think this season is actually a stark eye-opener for Jürgen of what a mistake he made in keeping Milner and Henderson for as long as he did. When he sees what Zaboslai is capable of, when he sees what, you know, using some of these younger players like Gerald Kwanzaa is giving him. Well, McAllister in a completely new role as well. Yeah, do you know, like, the, the upgrade that Liverpool have made despite losing all that experience and leadership that apparently they couldn't live without, it just shows it was all it was all nonsense. There was never any real truth to this idea that Henderson and Milner were uber important for setting standards. Because if you're the worst player in the team, what standards are, is it that you're setting? That you get to training early? 
that you put your phone in your locker, that's not setting standards. Like Virgil van Dijk and Thiago Alcantara and Mo Salah and Sadio Mane and Alison Becker, they never once looked at James Milner and Jordan Henderson and thought, that's the standard I need to get to. Not at all. Not at all. They they set their own standards. Trent Alexander-Arnold and Curtis Jones and the young players, they weren't looking at Milner and Henderson and thinking, they're the lads I want to copy. They were looking at Salah and Mane and the gym routines that them two boys had. They were looking at Van Dyke and the level of consistent brilliance he was putting out and thinking, that's the level. All the rest was fluff and bluster. Unfortunately for De Zerbe, he needs to have that kind of come to Jesus moment as well, where mm. he realizes that, like, I mean, they've just given Jason Steele a new contract at his insistence. He's been terrible this season, but he passes out well as a goalkeeper. He costs you a goal every couple of games. And I, I mean, directly costs you a goal every couple of games. But you, you play with him in goal, you're starting out behind the eight ball straight away. I know Verbruggen is young and he's going to make mistakes, but let him make the fucking mistakes because long-term, he is going to be one of the best goalkeepers in the world. Jason Steele is legitimately the worst goalkeeper in the Premier League. This is a guy who not all that long ago was struggling for minutes at a League One club. Do you know? This is the issue with the Zerbi. He's, he's still in that in that phase where he's just too loyal to bad players. And until he snaps out of it and moves on from the likes of Milner, Lalana, Welbeck, Steele, players that are not good enough to play in the Premier League at this point in their careers, there, there will be a cap on what he's capable of. Because even if he went to United, you could see him falling in love with a Harry Maguire. Do you know? You could see him having a real affinity for Casemiro and continuing to play him a year or two from now when it's quite clear that right now, Casemiro should be handed a book of Arabic and told to learn this, buddy. You're away to the desert, the first chance we get. Yeah, that would be a concern. But we've got Jürgen, fortunately, so other teams can worry about that. Uh, moving on, then, we have Man City against Bournemouth. I mean, it should just be a Man City easy win, but Bournemouth mm. do have the potential to frustrate a bit, but we have seen them, what do we get tonked by, Everton and Arsenal, but they have frustrated a few teams. A tough game for Tottenham, tough game for Liverpool. Yeah, yeah, and, and they've looked improved in their last two games. And obviously City have no KDB, so they are they are struggling a little bit in terms of their build-up play. Now I get back Guardiola to figure it out, but they are they are a little bit a little bit off in terms of their their, their build-up. Um KDB is the only player they have injured, which is a remarkable thing to look up and down the league. And everybody bar West Ham has like three and four injuries. West Ham currently have no injuries. City have won and everybody else is three or four. So massive credit goes to their medical departments and sports science departments because obviously they're both Europe play, clubs playing in Europe. So they're playing those added games and still keeping everybody fit and fresh. Bournemouth, no Tyler Adams, no Ryan Fredericks, no Marcondes, no Neto. Lewis Cook sent off for being an idiot. 
and uh, no Darren Randolph at the moment. Um, uh, there's no point in spending too long on this. If City win. City win. I'm going to say they win comfortably. I'm going to go 4 0. Yep, wouldn't surprise me. Um, we'll move on then to Sheffield United against Wolves, Dave. I, I think we say it every week Sheffield United just do not look anything like a Premier League team. I think the only interesting thing is that Neto's missing for Wolves. It's just who will fill that void. Yes. Yeah. Juan Cunha, maybe they give. Um, oh my God, what's a striker called? Sasa Kalajic. Kalajic, maybe the rejig and put Cunha wide or something like that. Or I think that's the play. Sarabia, I do think that's something the play. like that. Yeah. Yeah, Sarabia probably is the most, the easiest fit just because he's a left footer. And he can come in and play that side, but he doesn't have the pace. I I'd be looking to play um to play Cunha. Now the other option, if they wanted to play a winger, would be to give a debut to Enzo Gonzalez, the young Paraguayan kid they bought in the summer, who's mm. uber talented, but he's never played in the Premier League. He's never played for Wolves yet. So do you really want to chuck him in? I don't think you do. I think, I think you'd, if you're going to give him a debut, you want to give it to him off the bench. They could, they could maybe push Hugo Bueno forward as a as a winger, play Huang on the right, and maybe do that. I think the play is to put Huang one side, Cunha the other, and play Sasa through the middle. I, I think that's their best their best course of action. Um. I fancy Wolves to win this game quite comfortably, to be honest. Even with the absence of Neto, who's been one of the best players in the league this year. Neto, Bellegarde, Bueno. Oh, Bueno's out, so he couldn't play. So, silly there. Uh, Joe Hodge also out till January. Um, I'm just hopeful that the Neto injury is just a couple of weeks and then he's back because he's been so much fun this season. And I really want to see him get, you know, the best part of a season where he's fit and firing and see what he's capable of because his career has been so interrupted by injuries and I want to see him play regularly. Uh, Sheffield United are missing loads of people. Basham, Asula, Lowe, Ahmed Hodzic probably misses out this weekend. McBurney probably misses out this weekend. Norrington Davies is out. Egan is out. Davis is, Davies is out. And Daniel Jebison is out. They've taken one point from 10 games. I think they lose. And I think we get the first manager fired early next week. I think he's the first manager gone, heck and bottom. I I just don't think one point from 11 games. I don't think you can survive that. Now, they might wait another week and just get themselves to the international break. They go to Brighton. That's a near certainty defeat, in my view, because they don't have... Well, Cameron Archer's really good, and he is strong and quick, but I don't think they've got the quality to go and beat Brighton in Brighton. I think if they lose this one, he's gone either this week or next week. I, I don't see him being there after the international break. Um, I'm going to go 2-0 to Wolves. Yeah, not the most interesting game, I'm afraid. Uh, moving on to the uh, half-five kickoff on the Saturday, then we have Newcastle against Arsenal, Dave. Um, 
it, it, tough, well, litmus test for both, kind of. Yeah, I think it's the toughest game for Arsenal thus far this season. I know they've played Spurs and, and City, but they were at home. They're on the road here. They've been to Chelsea, but Chelsea aren't very good. Newcastle are very good. And they've had, you know, they've had some wobbles. They had a tough enough start to the campaign. And they did lose a few games, but they're, they've bounced back and found form. And they're sixth. They are five points off Villa, which is nothing to sniff at. But they looked really good against United, even with the rotated team. And I know it's United and they're not very good, but, you know, it's still still a really good performance. They were great last time out at home in the league, which was Crystal Palace. Uh, beat them 4-1. They, of course, have beaten PSG 4 beat them beat Palace 4-0. They've beaten PSG 4-1 in the last month as well, which was very, very impressive. Arsenal are an odd team. They just, I mean, they haven't really impressed this season. They've had a couple of big wins, PSV, Bournemouth, Sheffield United. They're bad teams. PSV have been great domestically, but they're not, like, the Eri Divisi's akin to winning the championship at this point. They've just, they've not really shown what they're capable of. They look disjointed in midfield. The, the, the Rice and Havertz, they bought Rice to be a six. They've moved him out of the six because he wasn't playing as well as they'd hoped. He was playing, he was fine, but you weren't getting what you get from him as an eight. As an eight, you get the whole Declan Rice experience. He wasn't a hundred million pound six. Not but, even close yeah. to it. Like he's not a hundred million pound eight either. Mm. But he was nowhere close to a hundred million pound six. I mean, it was stupid to even think that that was going to be the case at this point. You're going to buy him based on what he's done for West Ham. You need to use him in a role similar to what. Like this has always been my argument with United and Harry Maguire. They bought him based on what he did at Leicester, and then they tried to change the way he played. You don't spend that type of money on a player and then try and change how they operate. When you pay that type of money, you should be buying the finished product. And, and they're doing that with Havertz as well. It's like, that's the thing. They bought Havertz much. to play as the left side at eight. Mm. It was nonsense. Every I, I said it immediately that he was the Xhaka replacement and it was going to be a disaster. And they binned it off after a couple of games. By the they, way, did you see their midfield midweek? Jorginho <laughs> Vieira, horrendous. Jesus. And West Ham just pissed through them with incredible ease. Like that's not a recipe for success. Now Arsenal this weekend, no Thomas Partey, no Gabriel Jesus, no Emil Smith Rowe. It's really unfortunate because he just started getting some game, some some game time. And now he's injured again. And no jury in Timber. He'll be out for however long. For the tomb, though, a lot of players out. Mm. Tonali obviously suspended until August of next year. Done for the season. Harvey Barnes out of January. Jacob Murphy out of January. That's a blow because he was an important squad player for them. Elliot Anderson is out until December at the very earliest. Botman. He's still six, seven weeks away. That's a huge blow. Is he good? Yeah. Yeah. Isak is out until the end of this month. Lewis Miley is is ill. Mankia was out and Matt Target picked up an injury in the week. It's a lot of injuries to deal with. 
the lack of Botman means more Lachelles or Dan Byrne at centre-back. Neither of those things are truly ideal. That's where Arsenal can exploit. The question is, who is the nine for Arsenal this weekend? Does he go with Trossard? Because I'd hope he goes with Havertz. And I think Havertz has an opportunity here now because Saka and Martinelli are exactly the type of wide forwards that, that Havertz will thrive with if he's given the opportunity as the nine, as long as they play to him in a way that, sorry, as long as they play through him rather than to him, as in use him as a playmaking hub. Don't go overly direct to him. Now, Arsenal are not a direct team anyway, but you don't want to be crossing too much to Kai Havertz. You want to play to him in pockets of space where he can drop off, bring a defender with him, create space for Martinelli or Saka to run into, and then play those lovely slide rule passes that he's capable of on the half turn. It's a good opportunity for him, but I I think he's going to start in Ketia because he got the hat-trick last weekend. And Nketiah won't worry Newcastle as much as I think Havertz could because Nketiah plays up against the centre-backs and Lachelles and Shar will enjoy that. I think Newcastle will win. Even with the injuries, I think Newcastle will win. I'm going to go 2-1 to the turn. It's a tough place to go. Mm. Yeah, it'll be an interesting game either way. I think most people will be watching that uh, on the evening um, on Saturday. We'll move on to Sunday then. Um, Super Sunday, question mark. (laughs) Um, Forest against Villa, Dave. I mean, Villa are just so good. and Forest have the moments, but it always feels Mm. like Every game's a struggle. Yeah. I mean, Forrest are dealing with important injuries to players like Daniil, who I think would make a massive difference for them in the middle of the park. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of good players in that Forrest team, but, you know, they're missing Montiel, so they're weakened at right back. Aurier is is far too unreliable. They're missing Felipe at centre-back, who I'm not a huge fan of, but as an organiser, he's he was very important to them at the back half of last season. It's like what we're talking about for Burnley, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly the thing. That's why, like, he's not a, a particularly good defender. He's, he's, he's a yard dog, basically, is what he is. If the ball is, like, he can head it and kick it, and if the ball is in front of him and he can see everything, then he's comfortable. Same as Craig Dawson. You get movement in and around him, you start dragging him out of position, then you expose the major flaws in his game. But he is a great talker. And especially with Murillo in, you need someone to kind of guide him through games. Now, Neocat is very good. Worrell's hit and miss at the Premier League level. There's just if they could if they had everybody fit, then the flaw would be the goalkeeper. And I think They'd probably still be a big, you know, a sort of bottom six team. But I still think they'd be, you know, they'd, they'd probably still, sorry, sorry, they'd still be a bottom half team, but I don't think they'd be a bottom six team. That's what I meant to say. Um, no Hudson Adoy, no Felipe, no Origi. God knows what's wrong with him. No Chris Wood is unfortunate because he was starting to play quite well. Uh, no Danilo and no Montiel. No, Danilo and Montiel are the two big, and, and Felipe. They're the, they're the three that they're actually missing there. Uh, Villa, no Buendia, no Mings. 
Moreno's back in training, but still a couple of weeks away. Uh, Duran, they hope, will be back, and Jacob Ramsey is still out, and, and who knows when he'll be back. Villa look unbelievably good at the minute, though. Villa are flying. Uh, they've won four of the last five. They're unbeaten in those five games. They've only lost away to Newcastle and away to Liverpool this season in the league. And aside from that, they've been pretty much very good in every other game. I mean, they beat Chelsea away. They beat Palace comfortably at home. They beat Burnley comfortably. They hammered Everton. They hammered Brighton. They hammered West Ham. They're going to draw away to Wolves. That's the the one sort of blemish on it. But they've been very, very impressive. I think they win this game. This game is game 38 in the Premier League for Unai Emery as Aston Villa manager. And thus far, they've taken 74 points. That's top four form. Win this one and it's top three form over a 38-game sample. I'm going to back them to win. Um... 3-1. 3-1. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost a shame for the Forest injuries because it could have made it more interesting. Yeah. To, uh, yeah. Yeah, because like Danilo and Sanger is going to be really good in midfield. Again. Mm. That's going to be a really good pairing. And you can just play the two of them and Gibbs White and then play two in attack. So, or if you're playing a 4-3-3, you could play the three of them and then three in attack. You could go with... Hudson Adoy and Alanga along with um with Teo. Mm. And that I think or Teo, that would that would be really strong. But without Danilo, you're having to play Mangala and Dominguez. Now Dominguez is really good, so I I'd probably still want him in the team anyway. But like Dominguez, Sanger, and Danilo as a three would be very, very good. Then you could play Hudson Adoy as a ten, or Gibbs White as a ten, and Alanga and Teu up front as a two, and you'd really cause teams teams problems. You'd have a strong base. You'd be able to protect your defense. Those two, Dominguez and and Danilo, can also cover their fullbacks. It, it would be a very very like it would be be a very Liverpool circa twenty eighteen to twenty twenty type of midfield. Not quite the same level of individual quality, although you could make a case that the eights would be every bit as good as Liverpool's. They wouldn't have Fabinho, but Sanger is a very good player. Um, now, obviously, they don't have the same calibre of defence, but a Montiel, someone, Murillo, someone else, <laughs> not sure who the <laughs> left-back would be. Uh, that's not... I think Aina in a four. Aina, yeah, Aina in a four, probably. You could play Omabamadeli there. He's comfortable enough. God, in that I role. forgot they have him. Yeah, he's back fit now, so hopefully, hopefully he'll get some game time soon. They bought too many people. <laughs> they bought, they bought so many players. Yeah, um, but the, but there is the makings of a good team there. Like there's the makings of a really good team. Like in a back three, I think you'd be in pretty good shape with. Omabama Deli, someone, and Murillo as your back three. And then Nuno Tavares makes a lot more sense as a yeah. wing back. Montiel as a right wing back. The thing there is you'd have to probably leave out either Dominguez or Alanga 
because you'd you have can to do that. Sanger. You can do that against certain opposition, though. Yeah, you can, of course. You can, of course. Um, you can, yeah, because you can rotate. Because in some games, you don't need to have three workhorses in midfield. Mm. So you can just play two of them and Gibbs White, and then you play Alanga with Teu up front. I think in January, if they go and buy, <laughs> buy another player, <laughs> if they could find that that centre back, like a younger version of Felipe, who's maybe ten percent better, th- that that would be ideal for them. And I don't even mean like I'm not talking about someone who's twenty five. I'm saying someone who's you know twenty eight, twenty nine, that kind of peak age. Like that could knit that defence together. I think Omar Medelli and Marillo both really, really good. It's just about finding that that kind of organizer in the middle. Um but yeah, like Forrest are not they're not miles away from being a, a pretty good team that'll cause everybody trouble. They're on a bad run at the moment, no wins in the last five. Mm-hmm. But they still have double the amount of points they did this time last year, which is a positive for them to take. Yeah, and as we keep kind of alluding to, they've got a lot of players to come back to as well. Uh, come back to them, I should say. Um, but we'll move on to the second half of Super Sunday, Dave, and that's Luton against Liverpool. Um, not to be disrespectful, but if Liverpool have any hopes of title challenging or even the top four, they should be beating Luton pretty comfortably. I know they give Spurs a tough game, um, but they did have a red card as well. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, Liverpool should be winning this. But I think Luton will make it ugly. But if Liverpool get the first goal, it it could get ugly the other way as well. Luton's only hope is to make this really, really ugly. That's their only hope. Um, Unfortunately for Luton, their primary weapons are the long ball and set pieces. And Liverpool have Van Dijk and Kanate at the back. And then a whole bunch of other big fellas who are quite good in the air at defending set pieces. Um, so it's going to be hard for Luton to find a goal in this game. Liverpool have no Thiago, who's now been ruled out till January. Uh, he was meant to be back two months ago, and now we've been told he won't be back for another two months. So that's not good. Andy Robertson's out till January. Luis Diaz is obviously dealing with a horrendous situation, and hopefully that will come to a resolution in the next couple of days. And Stefan Besetic, God knows when he'll be back. I mean, it, it could be. Yeah, Klopp didn't be, put a time on it at all. No, it could be January for him as well. Now, look, Stefan Besetic needs to have this season to just grow as a as a human, to become a bigger... I, I don't mean as a human, as in, you know, he needs to improve what he is as a human. I mean, actually physically grow as a human, mm-hmm. become bigger and stronger. So I don't care if he doesn't kick a ball for the senior team. If they put him in the gym and, like, force-feed him stakes and get him on the same type of training program that Salah is on, and he appears back in August of next year looking swole. The Joe Gomez. Remember when Joe had his <laughs> torn ACL and came back massive, like jacked, like I'm going to just body people, and then Klopp told him to lose the muscle. Hey, you can't move anymore. Yeah, so, Joe, yeah. Joe, it's not a bodybuilding contest, Joe. Get, put put the speedo away, Joe. This is football. Um, but yeah, but but for for Bissetich in the position that he might end up playing as that six, that's the, the best thing for him. Um, Luton, no Mads Anderson, no Dan Potts, no Laconga. 
who was going to be really important for them this season and has barely gotten to play. Uh, no Reese Burke, Jordan Clark, a major doubt. Amari Bell is a major doubt. Liverpool should win this game. I, I'm just really happy that, you know, it's Kenilworth Road and I've always got, I've got a soft spot for Kenilworth Road. I've got a bit of a soft spot for Luton. But their football is dreadful. Like it's, it's, it's not dreadful. It's just, it's not, it's not appealing to watch. There's, there's merit in it, of course, but it's not appealing to watch. Um, Liverpool to win 3-0. That's what I went for on scouted. I'm going to stick with that on here. Yep. 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 Uh, we'll move on to Monday night. And this is the big one, Dave. We have Spurs against Chelsea. Um, I mean, all logic points to Spurs winning. Yeah. But Chelsea did perform for a little bit against Arsenal and then, then imploded. <laughs> um, uh, I didn't watch the Blackburn midweek game because who the hell would? Um, I mean, there is signs Chelsea could get a bit better, but I mean, that Brentford game last week, it showed flaws. They're, just, they're so blunt in attack. They're so blunt in attack. Like, mm. the two goals they got against Arsenal, the the first one is Saliba been an idiot. And the second one is a cross that's mishit and finds its way into the net. Like, there's nothing... There's nothing for Chelsea to really point to and suggest that they're turning a corner. Mm. Um, they look, they won a couple of games against bad teams, Fulham and Burnley. Congrats. And you drew, you drew with an Arsenal team that haven't been great this season. You know, fantastic. I think the only thing you take from that Arsenal game is you should probably play Cole Palmer as the false nine over Nicholas Jackson. Yes. Yeah, you should. And when Nkunku is back, I think that's the best move for them. Now, knowing Pochettino, he'll probably play Cole Palmer off the right and Sterling off the left and Nkunku behind Jackson, and they'll still struggle to score goals, but they'll create more chances, so they will, by virtue of just having more chances, probably score more goals. But you know, if we look at them this season, um, opening day, they play Liverpool, and they played quite well for a long stretch of the game. Then they went and got completely taken apart by West Ham. Then they beat Luton, who have won one game all season. They beat AFC Wimbledon by the skin of their teeth uh, in the League Cup. Then they lost at home to Forest. If you're losing at home to Forest, who are dreadful away from home, you've got issues. They drew at Bournemouth at a time when Bournemouth couldn't buy a point. They lost at home to Villa. They did beat Brighton's reserves, and maybe that's what people got excited about. And uh, then they beat Fulham, who aren't particularly good. Then they beat Burnley, who are dreadful. And then they drew with Arsenal. But like, what am I meant to be impressed by among this? Then they play Brentford, and Brentford just completely outplay them. They allow them to have the ball, knowing that they have no cutting edge, and knowing that they're slow in transition defense. And knowing that Conor Gallagher in a double pivot is one of the dumbest ideas that Pochettino has ever had in his entire managerial career. Even worse than the games where he decided to play all four of his fullbacks just to get them some game time. And we saw the sight of Kieran Trippier and Danny Rose winger edition. Not pretty. Um, Going into this game, Chelsea have loads of injuries, of course. Fafana... Chilwell, Lavia, and Kunku. 
Chalaba and Chuck Wemeka all definitely out. Brogia and Mudrik questionable. Uh, Spurs, also a bunch of injuries. No Perisic, no Solomon, good for him. Uh, no Sessegnon. Doji's a doubt. He missed the last game. They desperately need him back. Uh, ben Davies is a doubt, so they could have no left back because Sessegnon and Perisic are also out. So they're going to be really, really keeping everything crossed that Doji is back. If this game was Saturday, they'd be in trouble at left back because they'd have to play Van de Ven there and play Eric Dyer at centre-back, which is not ideal. Uh, and no Alfie Whiteman. It's at the Spurs stadium. Spurs have been by far the better team this season. Um, Spurs have been really good this season and people are trying to diminish how good they are. And it's just so silly. They've passed every test that's come their way so far. And I know they got fortunate in the Liverpool game. I know they did. Very few people know it more than me. I mean you and um, the, the annoyance that we felt after that. But at the end of the day, they still won the game. Whatever the circumstances, they came away with three points. I think they win this game. And I, I really don't know that Chelsea, if, if Spurs get the first goal and Chelsea have to play a bit more of, a, of an attack-minded game, they're really going to leave Thiago Silva wide open to get absolutely destroyed by Young Min Son. I'm going to say 3-1 to Spurs. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's good that it's on Monday Night Football as well, because Monday Night Football is kind of always that one-sided mess of a game, usually. Yeah. Or it's yeah, Man United against Liverpool and it finishes 0-0. <laughs> um, but yeah, this should be a big game. But uh, that was the last game as well, Dave. Cool. So that will do us for this edition of the two-footed podcast i don't know what i was going to say there an edition popped into my head that will do us for this week as well uh we'll be back monday i think next week we have a full week as well i think the following week i'm missing the wednesday and thursday maybe i think next week i'm good for the whole week at least i really hope i am uh but the only way to find out will be to tune in every single day and listen to me ramble endlessly about all manner of nonsense. So take care of yourself. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye. Network.